Exodus 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After her, afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. and Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children go out of his land. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that we would hear your word now, hear the instruction you have for us as we read and once again, understand your truth. In spirit, we pray that you would convict within each of us uh, this message you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 11. The, the death of the firstborn is announced. So this is not, the, the plague is not happening in this chapter. This, this is such a significant plague. It gets a whole chapter. Well, it wasn't really a chapter originally, but... It was a big portion of text just to announce this last plague because it's very significant, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Chapter 11 here in Exodus is the announcement of it, and then in chapter 12, it's actually going to switch to stopping from talking about the the plagues for a minute and talk about the institution of the Passover, and then the 10th plague will happen. And we're going to, so we're going to see that this, interestingly, this plague is tied to uh, the Passover, which obviously was a, a significant uh, event for the for the Israelites, and of course they carried on. So this evening, I, I want to focus really, actually, on just the first few verses of this chapter because I think we're going to see something that's actually not talked about a lot in, in, in Christianity today. It, it's very powerful for God's people uh, and uh, for God's glory as He preserves. And perseveres his people. So we are now, as we mentioned, coming on to the tenth plague. After we've gone through all the plagues that Egypt has endured, 
This plague is not just the last plague, but it's the most significant plague. It is the absolute climax of God's repeated judgment upon Egypt. Uh, This plague has generational impacts, we're going to see. And it's really more significant than I think we just think. And because this idea of the firstborn is more significant than we take it to be in our culture. Okay? In our culture, if you're like the firstborn, it's just kind of like a fun fact. It's like, yeah, oh, he's the firstborn. Oh, he's the baby. Isn't that cute? It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's like, that's interesting, but it doesn't really mean anything. Right? We would say, you know, some, and I think it's because of we, we've kind of just really been sucked into some, some kind of like egalitarian mindset, which is like everybody's, everything's got to be equal. There's no child that's more important than another one. We wouldn't want to discriminate, so, which is true. But there's something very different that we need to understand, particularly at the time of the Exodus and biblically, that the firstborn is a very significant position, both for Israel and, interestingly, for Egypt. The Egyptians, pretty much the world at that time, they had this concept that the firstborn child was very important. It was very significant, had weightiness to it. And different cultures would have different aspects or rituals of how they would would distinguish the firstborn from other children. But what I want to do is read a portion of a commentary on this, just because I couldn't say it any better than this commentary, on the importance of the firstborn so we can understand it a little bit better. In biblical times, the firstborn was given certain unique rights, responsibilities, and privileges. A married couple's firstborn male child was given priority and preeminence in the family and the best of the inheritance. The nation of Israel is defined as God's firstborn in the Bible. In other words, Israel held a special place of privilege and blessing among the nations. Peoples in ancient cultures, even other than Israel, attached great value to the eldest son. That would be the firstborn son. Assigning him distinct benefits and obligations. So it wasn't just benefits, it was also responsibilities. The firstborn male was important because he was believed to represent the prime of human strength and vitality in that family as the opener of the womb, which we actually is wording we see in Exodus. As a result, the firstborn son became the primary heir of the family. The firstborn's birthright involved a double portion of the household estate and leadership of the family if his father became incapacitated or was absent for some reason. We actually see that in Deuteronomy 21.17. After his father's death, death, the eldest son usually cared for his mother until her death and provided for his unmarried sisters until their marriage or their death if they never got married. The importance of the firstborn reaches its apex in Scripture in the person of Jesus Christ. All, import, uh, all prior implications of the firstborn's role in the Bible serve to eliminate Christ's preeminence over all creation and in the family of God, which, of course, we heard in Colossians 1 as well. So this is really significant. So, again, again I think we have this tendency to think about the death of uh, uh, the plague of the death of the firstborn is kind of a situation where a lot of children were killed. That's how, we, that's how I admit I've always thought of it. It's just like a lot of tra- children were killed. That's really tragic. But what we need to understand tonight is it's much, it is a killing of a lot of children. 
But it's much more significant than that because it was the firstborn children. And, and so it was, it was sort of like, just to use an illustration, it wasn't just killing some children. It was like killing God's blessing. It was like killing the family name. It was like killing the future of your family. That's what it was like. It's like wiping it out. And so it was death, but it was more important than just death of a child. It was significant across many domains and categories of life. It had such weight. So it had this sort of physical, obviously, of the loss, but it also had like a spiritual and generational impact too. That's what we need to understand. Now, there's some interesting points we should talk about, too. Um, think about Bethany. Which of your boys is the firstborn? We have to get really precise, <laughs> right? Like, twins are an interesting example, right? Because it's like, well, are they both the firstborn? Or, you know, do we kind of do the Jacob Esau thing? And we know which one like, was born first kind of thing. And, and we, can, we can apply that, and it probably was. But also, remember, one of the questions that we might ask, particularly as we're not used to considering these types of uh, positions, is when it says firstborn, was it the firstborn child or was it just the firstborn male? For example, I had two daughters. And then Josiah was the, uh, is my first, f- firstborn male child. So you see, was the firstborn Acacia? Is the firstborn Acacia that would be killed in this plague? Or Josiah? That's the question. Well, there's a little bit of debate over this, although Scripture tells us uh, it was the males, the firstborn males, because uh, that is the word used in the Hebrew. So it's, that's pretty clear. But although that is still argued, I should just tell you. Now, secondly, here's the other question. Was there an age limitation on the death? Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm a firstborn, although I'm 48 years old, almost 48 years old. Um, would I get killed in this plague? Because I was a first, was So in other words, we, we think of it as like just children. It was just kind of, for some reason, we kind of get this idea, was it just children? But it was really all, anybody that was a firstborn male, no matter what age they were? Good question. We could talk about that more. There's different, different, uh, different uh, views of that. Although... Uh, there is some debate on that, although notice, notice what our scripture says. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne. And there is some inferences that it was children, um, although that's not super clear. So that's something we can read and research further. Uh, but uh, but back, to the, uh, uh, back to the announcement of the 10th plague. Uh, there's, there's something we, we, I don't think we've talked about yet as we've gone through all these plagues, but I think it's important to understand uh, it, this is kind of a, a use of wording. Plague. When I think of plague, I think of a sickness for some reason. It's like the bubonic plague, right? It's, it's a bad thing. COVID is like a plague. It sweeps through. But although that's really not the word. The word plague doesn't not just mean pestilence, right, in this, although it could. But the word in the original Hebrew here means more of like a strike or a blow. Like, I don't know, I think of the picture of like hitting something with a baseball bat. Like it's like, ooh, that, ooh, yeah, that hurt. And so what, what these plagues really are is like a strike of, it's like the strike of the hand of God upon Egypt. It's like, it's like a blow to them. 
Um, and they came in all these different forms. But again, the 10th plague was significant. It wasn't just locusts are going to eat up all your green gardens, which was horrible, I'm sure. This had generational impact. This wiped out family names. This is very significant. So again, notice something different about uh, the 10th plague. And uh, remember all the other plagues, uh, Moses and Aaron spoke it spoke the plague to Pharaoh. Remember, they were with they were they would like go meet Pharaoh at the river in the morning, or something like that, or they would go into his courts to announce the plague. But this time they didn't, because if you remember at the conclusion of the ninth plague, Pharaoh said, "Get away from me! Take heed to yourself. You will see my face no more. And the day you see my face, you shall die." That's what he said to Moses. And of course, uh, when Moses made this announcement of the death of the firstborn, it was not done in front of Pharaoh. So. Who knows what that means? Perhaps it was more of a surprise to Egypt, but uh, that is one difference. Now, the one aspect of this text that I'd really like us to consider closely tonight, tonight that we'll spend the rest of our time on is how the Lord set up his people for this to be a significant victory. Okay? We have, yet again, a big contrast. We have this plague, which, remember, is really neat, did not touch the Israelites, right? did not, this plague did not affect the Israelites, which we're going to learn more about in the next chapter. But you have this major plague, which was generationally painful and significant to the Egyptians. But we're going to see at the same time, after this plague, this is a huge victory for God's people, the Israelites. It's a huge conquering, actually, that they accomplish. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. And this is what we're going to focus on tonight and in there. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After word, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver, articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of all his people. So, notice a few things. First of all, in verse 3, God gave his people favor. If we were to paraphrase this, it says, it's basically saying the Egyptians ended up liking or having a lot of respect for the Israelites. Now, who were the Israelites to the Egyptians? Who were they? They're slaves. <laughs> They're slaves. I mean, they were the slaves, but they saw these people do what? So many things. It was incredible. See, the, the Hebrews were surely once regarded as despicable slaves, despised and rejected. But over time, they became esteemed by the Egyptians. It was an amazing transformation. The Hebrews started... Remember how they started by living in the land of Egypt at all? Remember this? Go back to think back to Jacob. But then they became slaves, and then they, they became slaves under a harsh and tyrannical ruler, Pharaoh. But let's, let's think about why. What are some of the reasons the Egyptians now thought highly of the Hebrews? What do you guys think? What, why? What, what happened here? Why would they think highly of them? They want them gone, okay. Well, 
yes, but that's but but it, but despite that, they did esteem them. It says, and they actually had they they had favor in the in the Egyptians' eyes. What do you what do you think? Some of the reasons are for that. Any ideas? Okay, good. They saw God's power. Right, that's a big one. I think so. They maybe maybe some of the Egyptians were like, wow, they maybe their God is real. Their God seems to be helping them, right? Protecting them, defending them. Okay, other ideas? Fear they feared. Yeah, maybe they did fear God. Yeah. These people are living and thriving. That's a good point. That's a good point. Moses, they really respected Moses. Really, really esteemed Moses. And the text says, um, they, uh, Moses, the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of all the people. So a couple of reasons that I noted. One is, remember back when they were slaves, and, and they were being basically really perse- persecuted in some ways, right? He was, uh, Pharaoh became their labors harder and more difficult. And what happened, what, what happened to the Hebrews? They grew. They actually thrived. <laughs> so that must have been like, wow, what is with these people? Like, we are being harsh to them, and they're just growing. Okay, they all, the Egyptians probably also said, saw that these people trusted in their God. They trusted in their God. And, um, and of course, here's another thing. Everything that Moses and Aaron said would happen, it happened, right? So, I mean, these guys weren't like false prophets just saying stuff. Like, they must have said, like, no way. They say frogs are going to just be everywhere, and then, like, it really happened, right? Everything. Now, the other thing is, remember, the Egyptians during this time are actually not really happy with Pharaoh. Remember that? Like in the last chapter we saw in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 7, right? They, they said to Pharaoh, they're like, why don't you just let these people go? Your, your country is being destroyed in front of you. And of course, we know God was hardening his hearts. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But, uh, but it was clear, I think the biggest reason, it was clear to the Egyptians that the Hebrews had supernatural protection from their God, of their God, by their God, and favor of their God that the Egyptians did not have. So this favor that the Israelites had was just, of course, one aspect of God's deliverance. But, uh, but, but God does a really, really neat thing here uh, that I really enjoy. And that is that God made this redemption a conquering. And this is how God's people actually conquered the Egyptians. Look at verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and from every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. This is really interesting, isn't it? So the Israelites are to ask their neighbors, presumably their Egyptian neighbors, for their gold and silver. Have you ever, anybody ever done that? Hey, neighbor, could I have your silver? I just need it for a while. I mean, what, what in the world is going on here? And because of the favor, the Egyptians gave them their gold, and, right? Maybe it was out of fear, but, they had, but it says because they had favor. The favor of the Israelites had gained. Now, notice, this is how God has set up the Israelites to plunder the Egyptians. 
I love how they didn't have to kill the Egyptians to, to, to plunder them. They didn't have to steal, uh, steal from them. The Egyptians gave them their treasures and they just walked out with them. Well, what a plunder. What a victory. That's incredible. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfathomable. I mean, we, we, this is not how plundering happens in history, right? You destroy an army or a town or a city or a nation, and then you take by force. You plunder them, but not here. It was given to them voluntarily. I, I actually want to read this from the King James Version because I like the wording used uh, in verse 2. Listen, this is from the King, how the King King's James renders it. Speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow from his neighbor and every woman borrow from her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. It's an interesting uh, way to think about it. You know, it's like you could go, go to your neighbor and say, uh, neighbor, I, I have an important event to go to in a few days with my God. Could I please have all your jewelry? Because I... I would like to take it on my event. And, you know, something weird's going on here where the Egyptians are like, sure, you can just have it. <laughs> Again, could have been out of fear, could have been out of a mix of fear and a mix of, of their reverence and respect and esteem that they had for the people. Don't exactly know how it happened, but what's clear is this is how the plundering happened, right? Because what we're going to see in chapter 12 is that the text says, the Lord had given people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and so they... So that, that, that what they granted, they were granted what they requested. And actually, we, we knew this was going to happen because it's spoken about way back in Exodus 3 and actually way back in, Exodus, in Genesis 15. God promised to Abraham. He said, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge after the word they shall come out with great possessions. So think about what's going on here. Not just is, is, Israel's not just going to be redeemed out of Egypt. Not, not, it's not just like some midnight escape hatch. Oh, guys, let's just sneak out at night. No, this is, this is a victory. This is a plundering. This, they, the word is, in the text is they spoiled the Egyptians, meaning they, they got all of their spoils and they took it with them. So this is, this is like they left and they had all the riches of Egypt. It's incredible. Uh, it reminds us of uh, Proverbs thirteen twenty two. A good man, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Reminds me of a story in Alaska. We had an older man who kind of mentored my wife and I. His name is Ted Hethcote, and uh, he's a very very humble, godly man and. I went over to his house one day to help him do some renovation projects. I mean, he didn't have a lot of money. But I get over there, and he has on this table all these power tools. And this is before, like, battery-powered stuff, right? This is a long time ago. But uh, he had all these power tools, and I'm thinking, Ted, where did you get this stuff? He's like, oh, my neighbor. He has all kinds of tools. He said, you know, the wealth of the sinner is stored up (laughs) for the righteous. And we used those tools all day long, and it was great. Um, So we see that this is part of the redemption, part of the deliverance from Egypt. The Israelite slaves, which is still what they were at this point, would experience gifts from their oppressors. Don't know if that's ever happened. But of course, this is what God does. He takes care of his people 
just like we read in Psalm 37. The Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. And so what we're seeing is deliverance from this state of bondage, from the state of Egypt, accompanied by a plundering, right? Their oppressors are actually going to give things to their slave, their slaves at this time. And it's just really a reminder to us of God's covenant grace and his compassion to his people, right? We, we see this even in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so God comes to his elect to deliver them from the oppressive domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of blessing, or as we read in Colossians 1, uh, into the kingdom of his son. Now notice that uh, God does not save his people so they can go and live for themselves, but he saves his people so they can go and worship him in holiness. And of course, that's what the Israelites were called to do, right? And that's what God was saying to Moses over and over again. I'm going to... I'm going to save you, redeem you out of this, so you can go and worship me. And what's neat is that actually God told Moses and Aaron to say that to Pharaoh. Hey, uh, God's telling us that we need to go worship him, so let us go. That was the reason. I love that. That was the reason. It wasn't some excuse like, uh, you know, you're you're not a really great master. We don't want to be slaves. It was none of these excuses, sort of worldly excuses. It was God's told us to go worship him. It's always a good reason to go do things, is to worship God, right? So let nothing be in your way of worshiping God. But, uh, but we see that, in, in, again, in uh, Ephesians, in Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. See, we were delivered so that we may go and serve God, right? This, the scriptures declare this to us, right? In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In other words, a big part of our redemption, of why you're saved, is so we can go worship God. We are, we are here to serve and worship him in this life. And this really transforms us, I think, to no longer live for ourselves but to worship God. Worship God how he wants to be worshipped, right? And to glorify him. So tonight we see that God's people have been rescued. They have been saved, and they've been saved not to go serve themselves, not to go do whatever they want. And we're going to find out later what they're supposed to do with all these spoils. What are they supposed to do with all this gold and silver now, right? What are they supposed to do with it? We're going to find out. But it wasn't to go serve themselves. It wasn't just to go and live extravagant lives. I mean, who knows what they got? Jewelry? I mean, the Egyptians had lots of, lots of things, lots of resources. But it's the same for us. We're not redeemed. We're not blessed with the abundant blessings and gold, as it, as it were, the, the gold of God, the treasures of his truth, to go serve ourselves, right? When... when when you are freed from, being, from slavery, what will you do? Will you go serve yourself? Or as Galatians 5 reminds us, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, 
but through love serve one another. So what will you do with your liberty? You've crossed the Red Sea. You've been released from slavery, from the, the domain of darkness. Now what will you do with this victorious deliverance that you've been given? And it's perhaps a question we should ask ourselves. Does God's deliverance from sin motivate you to worship him your entire life? Right? Just rem- rem- meditating on, remembering, wow, God's saved me from a life of sin and misery to, to do what? What do I do now in this life? Well, it's to go and worship him. And we remember that, as we'll see uh, in the next few chapters, as the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, so they were now delivered, notice that they didn't do that in a timid way. I mean, I think if I was a slave somewhere by this really tyrannical leader, you know, I would be like, you know, in our escape, if you will, I would be like, you know, kind of nervous, like, got to get out of here and hope he doesn't come and chase after me or come and get me. But notice, we're going to see in future chapters, that's not how they left Egypt. In fact, our text says, they left rejoicing with their hands raised. That's because it was a victory. It was a victory. They, and they were confident in that God was saving them. It wasn't, they weren't confident in their works or maybe even how they escaped, but only that God had delivered them. And, and he had blessed them with all these treasures from the Egyptians. So in other words, this was a victory. It was, it was a devastating blow. Egypt, not only, we're going to see, has to deal with the 10th plague, which is bad enough, the death of the firstborns, but also the way that they lost all their slaves, if you will, this, all this manpower, this was a devastating blow to the Egyptians because they also spoiled them. They took all their possessions. They took all their riches. So the Israelites didn't just escape, but they plundered the Egyptians. And this was an absolute conquering by the hand of God. And so as God's people today, uh, we need to remember that a conquering defines who we are. We, we, we are uh, living with an identity in Christ. Uh, we are continually sanctified and transformed into that image of Christ so that our God who conquered death and sin, that we live uh, similarly conquering lives. We are what called what in Romans 8? More than conquerors, even more than conquerors, not just conquerors. And this is what God has done for us. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He set us free to go and serve him. And so we can think about this in terms of knowing of this of redemption. How then shall we live? Well, remember the words of Apostle Paul, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. And in, in, the, in the original language, there's no is, it's just to live Christ, it's just, you're every, it's all-encompassing, right? Every aspect of your life is Christ-centered. And so our lives should be defined by the supremacy of Christ in, in everything that we do. And we said earlier, because God won the victory for his people, we go forth and live in the fruits of that victory. So can, may, may we just ponder that Uh, tonight and this week and beyond and just freshly be reminded that we are partakers of the fruits of the spoils of the victory of our king jesus christ and may we live for him in that
Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the victorious work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you how this was displayed before us in the uh, redemption of your people uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, and that it was not just a, an escape, a midnight rescue mission of some sort. It was a devastating blow. It was a, a significant victory and a significant plague or defeat or strike to the Egyptians. As your word says, you will defeat all of your foes and you will reign preeminent over all. Oh God, uh, help us to reflect upon this in our lives and remember the humble confidence we are to have as your servants and how Christ should be in every aspect of our life so that we may live Christ in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.